Morning Church family. Um, as Rodan said, my name is Joanne. I'm from the Water for Life group. So I'm going to briefly read for you from Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Be, <clears throat> But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now, on, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of God. Thanks, Joe. Thanks to the Waterfall Life Group. Uh, before we come to that, why don't you join me in a word of prayer? Let's commit ourselves to the Lord. Father God Almighty, you are majestic, you are exalted, you are transcendent, you are other, and yet you come so near, you come so near to us in love in the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you come to be with us, God with us, Emmanuel. We praise you. For who you are. We praise you for your glory and for your closeness. We, we thank you that you are not like us and yet you love us. We've just sung of our worth, these two mysteries, these two great mysteries, our worth and our unworthiness. And we see them so clearly at the cross of Christ. Father, once again, we, we are nothing apart from your goodness and your mercy to us. And so please will you speak this morning through your word. Remind us of the great truth of our salvation in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us by your spirit, we pray, and let us leave here changed people. In his name we pray. Amen. So... Um, we come to the end of our time in Galatians. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, it's been such a blessing to me. I don't think there's another book, well, I can't think of one offhand, that is so clear on the gospel and gets to the gospel so directly uh, without any detours. And so we praise God for his word to us in this letter. Uh, this passage is Paul's final sign-off in the letter to the Galatian churches. You remember these churches he planted with Barnabas in his first missionary journey. If you want the details, you can go and read them in Acts 13 and 14. I recommend you do that. Paul gets back to Antioch, and after he gets back to Antioch, after that missionary journey, some Jewish Christians, they are, consider themselves counter-missionaries, they go around correcting his message. They were telling Gentiles in those churches who had put their faith in the Jewish Messiah that if they wanted to be part of the covenant community, the covenant people of God, then faith in the Messiah is a good start. 
It's a good start, but they also needed to be circumcised into the law of Moses because he's the Jewish Messiah after all. Paul hears about this and he writes an angry letter. This is the end of the angry letter. And he doesn't waste an opportunity. Even though he's at the end of his letter, he doesn't waste an opportunity in a letter packed full of punches. He lands one more punch, and this is arguably the haymaker. This isn't the usual pleasantries of goodbye. You know how it is after a braai, when you move from outside and then you slowly move into the living room. This is goodbye. It takes like an hour. And then you slowly move into the driveway and there's that awkward chit-chat before somebody actually gets in the car to leave. None of that. Paul just pulls the pin out of the grenade and he walks away. In these few verses, he condenses everything he's already said into a powerful summary of the whole letter. And in that summary, he sets the gospel against religion and religion against the gospel. It's Paul against the counter-missionaries. It's the cross against circumcision. The gospel against religion. We see that opposition so clearly. We can see the differences between the gospel and religion so clearly, especially if we look at them under, I hope these three headings will be helpful to us. These three headings to show us the differences between the gospel and religion. The qualification, who gets in? The motivation, why would you even want in to this covenant family? And then the operating system, once you're in, how do you stay in and how do you move ahead? The qualification, who gets in, the motivation, why would you even want in? And then the operating system, how, once you're in, how do you stay in, how do you move ahead? So we start with the qualification. Who gets into the covenant people of God? Who gets into the family of God? We've kind of been acknowledging that here this morning. The question is, why these ones and not some others? Who qualifies? How do you qualify? In our passage, there are two very straightforward answers. That's how Paul is. He's plain, he's straight, he's direct. There are those who boast in the flesh. This is how you get in. Those who boast in the flesh, verse 13. And then there's Paul who boasts in the cross, verse 14. The counter-missionaries were saying that for the Gentiles to get in, they needed Jesus plus circumcision. Plus the law of Moses. Jesus plus plus. The upgrade. Paul is equally clear. For anyone to get in. Jew or Gentile. Gentile or Jew. Mind you. You need the cross of Christ. And only the cross of Christ. It is those who have died and risen in Christ. And are now part of the new creation. Who get into what Paul calls in verse 16. The Israel of God. Now that is a provocative name. I said he was throwing some punches. He's going out throwing punches. It's a provocative name because he's giving that label Israel to anyone who trusts in the cross of Christ, including non-Israelites, including non-Jews, including the Gentiles. He's saying that the cross includes Gentiles of faith, but it also excludes religious Jews. Can you imagine? This is how he defines the Israel of God. You get in by the cross. 
Now, I hope you can see that these two positions could not be more radically opposed to each other. On the one hand, we have religion. For circumcision, we can substitute anything that we do. Bible reading, prayer, mission work, pastoral care, care for the poor. Anything that we do that we think helps us to qualify. That's religion. The cross is God's verdict on our religion. Religion says Jesus isn't enough. The cross says religion isn't enough. The cross tells us what God thinks of our religion. If you want to know what God thinks of your religion, look at the cross. The cross tells us our religion has failed. Dismally, miserably. Worse, our religion is nothing but hypocrisy. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Isn't that the point? If you want to know what law-keeping looks like, what keeping the law looks like, look at Jesus. That's the standard. That's what it takes if you want to earn your way into the family. Perfect love fulfills the law. Bursts the banks of the law. Perfect love. Perfect integrity. Perfect purity. Perfect obedience. Joyful obedience. And so we have failed. Our religion has failed. The cross tells us so. In no uncertain terms. But the cross also tells us that God has dealt with our failure. All of our failure. Including our religious failure. Earlier on in the letter, if you can think back to chapter 3 verse 10, Paul writes, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. I mean, can he be more clear than that? Anyone who relies on works of the law is under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The cross tells us that the curse of our failure has been borne by Jesus so that we might enjoy the blessings of his success. The curse of our failure, we trade that for the blessings of his success. At the cross. His righteousness for our failure. The cross tells us that Jesus has won us a place in the family. How do we get in? The cross of Christ. That is the exact opposite of religion. But it's not always easy to see. Because religion is such a clever counterfeit of the gospel. Such a clever account of it. They sit so close together in our experience and in our hearts. They look so much alike. But religion is nothing more than a mimic. 
It's a parrot. It's a cheap copy. They are not the same thing. In fact, religion hates the gospel. Religion persecutes the gospel. We're going to understand why as we shift our focus to motivations. So let's do that now. The motivation. We've looked at who gets in. How you get in. Those who trust in the cross of Christ. We look at the motivation now. Why would you even want in to this covenant family? The motivation structure for religion is completely exposed. Paul lays it bare in verses 12 and 13. Have a look there. We're back in chapter 6. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The first motive of religion is, verse 12, to make a good showing in the flesh. Now, literally, the word means to put your good face forward. To put your best face forward. In our language, that simply means to impress people with external appearances. To try and look good. I mean, don't we want to look good? What we're talking about is our reputation. Image projection. Branding. This is the religious version of your profile picture. What do you put up there? What is it that you want people to see? What do you want your church family to think about you? How do you want them to see you? How do you want to be known? If any of that is what drives you at church, and let's be honest with ourselves, because God already knows, If any of that is driving us, we can be sure we have religious motives. At least in part. At least in part. We opt into religion for the social capital it gives us. For the standing it gives us in the community. We want to be known as a certain type of person. In biblical terms, we are motivated by the fear of man. And in the terms that Paul is using in in this letter... We are seeking our own glory. Now, it's not quite as brazen as that in our experience. It's very subtle. But if, if, we, if you think, if we're honest, if we are responding to and trying to manipulate in subtle ways how, what people think of us, that's the religious root. This motive also explains why we try and force others to adopt a standard we ourselves can't keep. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would do what? Who would force you to be circumcised. Having you adopt my standard gives more weight to my standard. Because there's a bunch of us now who keep this rule. Having you adopt my standard serves my reputation and my name because it's my standard after all. I've convinced you that this is how you should live. If I can get you to buy in, you build my brand. It's like a religious pyramid scheme. The more people I can stack in under me, the higher I rise. Forcing others to adopt my standards of morality or spirituality is a basic impulse in religion. It's fundamental to what religion is. Do you find yourself doing that? And again, let's be honest. 
He knows. He already knows. In ever so subtle ways, do you find yourself doing that? Imposing your standard on others. Getting angry and bitter with others because that's not how I would do it. And that's not what I would do. Feeling superior. You know that feeling? It's almost physiological. A slight rising and inflating of the chest when we see somebody else's failure in an area where we are strong. Do you know that feeling? It's not how I would do it. It's not what I would do. If you are measuring others against yourself or yourself against others, you can be sure there is a religious root growing in your heart. In the end, it's all about my brand, my name, my reputation, my standing in the community. And of course, if my name is paramount, then I will do anything to avoid damaging my name, to avoid being discredited, to avoid losing standing in the community. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Why? So that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, opposed for the cross of Christ, shamed by the cross of Christ. Religion is motivated by the fear and favor of men. The gospel, of course, has an entirely different motivation structure. While religion glories in the flesh, in worldly external appearances, the gospel glories in the cross of Christ. Glories in the cross of Christ. Listen to um, that same verse, chapter 6, verse 14, but I'm going to read it to you from the King James Version because it's, the language just helps us understand what I'm trying to get across here. God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what the cross of Christ does to religion in Paul's life, in his heart. Again, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, religion is dead to Paul. And Paul is dead to religion. This is how he puts it in a letter to another church. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised, there we have it, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. In Christ, religious soul was put to death. And in Christ, the Paul of faith was raised to new life. 
This is another reminder that religion and the gospel do not mix. They do not blend. It's oil and water. They sit ever so close together in our hearts, in our experience. But they will never mix. They can never mix. There can be no compromise. Faith in Christ doesn't leave any room for our religious contributions. God doesn't accept you because of Jesus and your care for the elderly. Because of Jesus and your commitment to the poor. Because of Jesus and your leadership position in this church. As Paul says, you, if you are in Christ, you have died to religion. And religion has died to you. Don't try and bring the corpse of your religion into the presence of God. As if he should be proud of you. As if that stinking corpse somehow improves the situation. You know, it's like a cat dragging a rat into the house. Presenting it as if we should all be proud and applaud him. It's exactly how our religion is. In the gospel, our motivation is the cross. And the cross guarantees the other side of our motivation, namely the new creation. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What counts is a new creation. At the cross, Jesus died for the cursed creation. And in his resurrection, he was the firstborn of a new creation. He was the first fruits anticipating the full harvest. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that at the end of time, God will make all things new. All things. And he's begun that work now in each one of us by his Spirit. As Paul writes to yet another church, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. If anyone is in Christ, you are walking around as the new creation. We live as new creatures between the cross of Christ and his return to make all things new. Christ has rescued us and he is taking us home. To the glory of God. To be with our Father in glory. That's our motivation. Or in Paul's language, in verse 16, that's the rule to live by. Therein lies the blessings of peace and mercy. The reason, the reason for wanting to be in this family That motivation structure is also the reason why Paul can even welcome persecution. Listen to what he says in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That word that he uses for marks, the marks that he bears on his body, is stigmata. It's where we get our word stigma, our English word stigma. In Paul's day, stigmata referred to the branding that a master would put on his slave. The marks that would be burnt into the flesh of the slave, declaring that this slave belongs to this master. Paul had many marks on his body. 
He had been stoned. He had suffered countless beatings. Five times he was flogged with the infamous 39 lashes. Whipped across his back with the goal of drawing blood 195 times in total. There would have been scars. There would have been scars. And these were the scars of being persecuted for Christ. Paul took them as his stigmata. He wore them proudly as the marks that identified Jesus as his master. We can't miss the irony, can we? Because here you have the counter-missionaries living in the fear of man, coveting the favor of man. Their goal is to please others and not to offend anybody. They present their best face forward and they avoid persecution or shame at any cost. They were building their brand. Paul, on the other hand, boasts in the cross of Christ. He welcomes the persecution that comes with it. The marks that it leaves on his body are a public witness to his master. They showed everybody that he belongs to Jesus. That was his brand. Now that leaves us with two pointed questions, doesn't it? Well, it leaves us with a whole range of questions. Let's deal with these two to start with. Why would Paul have been persecuted for his loyalty to Jesus in the first place? It's important for us to have an answer to this question so that we can understand persecution when it comes our way. Why do people hate the gospel? I mean, it's good news, isn't it? Why do people hate it so much? I'll let um, John Stott give us the answer. And what is there about the cross of Christ that angers the world and stirs them up to persecute those who preach it? Just this, Christ died on the cross for us sinners, becoming a curse for us. So the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves, namely that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. Every time we look at at the cross, Christ himself seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. Your curse I am suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. And of course, men do not like it. They resent the humiliation of seeing themselves as God sees them, and as they really are. They prefer their comfortable illusions, so they steer clear of the cross. They construct a Christianity without the cross, which relies for salvation on their works and not on Jesus Christ's. They do not object to Christianity as long as it is not the faith of Christ crucified. But Christ crucified they detest. And if preachers preach Christ crucified, they are opposed, ridiculed, persecuted. Why? Because of the wounds which they inflict on men's pride. The religion in all of us, and it is in all of us, if we are honest, 
hates the cross. Because the cross says all of our righteousness is worthless. All of our righteousness is worthless. In fact, brothers and sisters, we have to repent not just of our sin. We have to repent of our righteousness. Human beings hate that idea. That's why if you proclaim the cross in word or deed, you will be opposed. You will be. Don't be surprised. Which brings us to our second question. Why then would anyone proclaim the cross? If it's only going to bring hostility and opposition and hatred, why, why would anyone proclaim it? Why did Paul? Well, as we read Galatians, and as we read the rest of his epistles, we come to this kind of answer. Paul became a slave of the king because the king became a slave for him. The king of creation died the death of a runaway slave so that Paul could live the life of a king in the new creation. Paul would gladly live the life of a slave now in this life in loyalty to his king who is coming back to usher in a new creation and a new kingdom. And on that day, the king will put a crown on the head of his servant. That's why Paul wanted in. That's his motivation. The short answer is love. Paul loved Jesus with his whole being because Jesus loved him first with his whole being. And this is not a transaction. So please don't mishear me. This is not reciprocal. It's not a reciprocal arrangement. Paul was dead in his sins and transgressions. He was brought to life by the overwhelming life-giving gift of God's love for him. And that awakened in him the possibility of love. Love for God and love for others. So powerful is this gift that Paul wore the marks of persecution on his body proudly because they said, he's my king. That's my king. They were marks of allegiance to his king. And so he wore them proudly. Sharp question for us, pointed question for us. One we can't avoid. Are we willing to suffer persecution for our faith? Thanks be to God, we are unlikely to have to wear marks on our bodies. That may come. Who knows? The Lord knows. But are we willing to bear the stigma that comes with loving Jesus? Religion is popular. People love religion. You can talk about God all day long. But talk about the cross of Christ. That's a whole other thing, isn't it? That's an embarrassment. That creates all sorts of awkwardness. That gets people to leave the conversation to go get a drink or the bathroom. As Paul says elsewhere, that's an odor. It's a stench. It's a bad smell. It's a stigma. Are you willing to wear it? To take it in to social settings? Proudly, joyfully, cheerfully, hopefully. If not, and I suspect all of us struggle with this, if not, what is the solution? It's not to try harder. That's just religion. 
Go back to the cross. Sit there a while. Look up at your Savior. As far as your religion is concerned, the cross will strip you naked and put you to death. As far as God's love for you is concerned, the cross will dress you in the royal robe, put the royal signet ring on your finger, bury you in the embrace of a father who loves you. That's what the cross will do. When you know you belong to the king and that he's coming back in the morning, as soon as the dawn breaks, he'll be here. You can face anything the night throws at you. Anything. So we've thought about the qualification. How do you get into this covenant family? The motivation. Why would you want into this covenant family to begin with? And now we think about the operating system. You're in. How do you stay in? How do you move ahead? The operating system of religion is straightforward. We see it all around us. It is the fuel that our world runs on. It's called performance. Performance is about what you do on the outside relative to others to keep going up, to keep getting ahead. We know performance, don't we? Performance is the air we breathe. And the goal is to be better than others. It's simple. As long as I stay with the pack and I leave these ones behind, I'm good. That is my security. That is my self-worth. At least I know I'm better than so-and-so, which means I mean something. I must be of some value. When I look at these ones, I know I am of some value when I look at these ones. The way to get in and to move along is to earn it by outperforming others and putting God in your debt, right? He must choose you. He must bless you based on your performance relative to these ones. The gospel reverses that current completely. It runs in the opposite direction. We've seen it the whole way through Galatians. We see it coming to a head in our passage. And Paul names this operating system explicitly in his final word to the Galatians. So look at verse 18. What's the final word? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The fuel of the gospel is grace. Not performance, it's grace. It's God's performance, not ours. Paul ends his letter where he started his letter, with grace. Because that is the heart of the gospel. Grace is how you get in. Grace is how you stay in. Grace is how you take the next step. Grace is God's work on the inside, not your work on the outside. And remember, grace and religion don't mix. They can't mix. Religion tries to destroy grace. Grace destroys religion. Let me, let me try in closing, let me try and illustrate this just one more time. It's a, it's a common illustration. I think it's one we all know well. You've all heard it said, I presume. God is at the top of a mountain. Right, And as far as the religions of the world are concerned, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. You heard this? We're familiar with this? 
God's at the top, all roads lead to the top. And that's true. As far as religion is concerned, that's true. Because religion is about climbing the mountain to God. And of course, those who are stronger and faster climb higher. And then they turn back to us who are down below and they say, come on, go left, go right. They direct us. They show us how to climb. We celebrate their achievements. We honor them. We take their direction. They tell the rest of us to hurry up if we ever want to make it. That's religion. That's performance. Our hearts are inclined towards that, towards climbing the mountain. That's the air we breathe. The gospel of grace says, if you ever want to be with God, you can't climb up. This mountain makes Everest look like a pebble. You can't climb up. He has to come down. If you ever want to be with God, he has to come down. And when he does, then it becomes clear to us why we can't climb up. When we meet him in the person of Christ and we see who this God is, it becomes crystal clear to us how we can never get ourselves to him, how he has to come to us, how he has to come down. We cannot climb up. It becomes clear to us that we haven't actually been climbing the mountain at all. We're not even in the foothills. We are little children playing on a jungle gym on the bottom of the valley. Those at the top of the jungle gym have been pulling tongues at the kids below them on the jungle gym and singing, I'm the king of the castle. That's religion, that jungle gym. The ones on top pulling tongues at the ones below singing, I'm the king of the castle. How foolish we feel when the king himself arrives. And we have to get down off of our perch and sit at his feet with everybody else to listen how much he loves us all, whether you're on the top of the jungle gym or the bottom of the jungle gym. That's grace. It's the end of religion. It's the beginning of life with God. It will move you to love him and to live for him. All the way to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we can only thank you for your grace. We have nothing else to bring. And so we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us both of how unworthy we are and how much you love us anyway. Father, what a relief, what a freedom that we can stop pretending and stop playing games as we move between the cross and the new creation. Help us to live under the rule of your grace. Please put what remains of religion in us to death. Crucify us to religion and religion to us. We pray that by the power of the cross, we would gladly bear the stigma of Christ in a world that so desperately needs him, just as we did. 
as we wait for him to return with the new dawn, help us to endure all things, forsake all other loves, and live for him. With the Apostle Paul, we pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirits. Amen.